0: Science story, huh? These NYU scientists—they uh, it I felt, 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 felt really, right. right. I was so happy. Oh, well. I figured
1: it wow. out. I feel it was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey,
2: everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker. And I'm your other host, Liz Neely. And this week we're presenting stories
3: about people's earliest experiences with science. People love to talk about children as being born scientists, and they really are. It's one of my favorite things are these research projects that show us exactly how sophisticated babies can be. So Erin, the researcher's Actually, do magic tricks in front of the babies. Right. <laughs> like card tricks? They they do. They analyze their reactions. So they'll like they'll take a little toy car and they'll roll it across a table. And normally you would roll it across the table and it'd fall off, right? But instead of falling, it floats. And so the babies are like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> they're surprised. But these babies, they're and they're little, they're like yes, less than a year old. But they don't just accept it. They instead they want to figure it out. So they'll stare really intently at the floating car. And then if you let them touch it, they will systematically test hypotheses about it. They'll like bang the car and drop the car over and over again to try and figure out like, is this a magic car? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This is a, a science paper from 2015. We'll drop the reference in that for the web page so you can go explore yourself.
2: But yeah, our our stories today are from... People who are a little bit older. That's
3: right. (laughs) When they encounter science. More sciencey science.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Do you remember your first experience with science when you were growing up?
3: Oh, yeah. In uh, second grade, I learned Morse code. And we learned also how to make little electrical uh, circuits so that we could turn a light bulb on and off and then send each other coded messages. In the first grade? Second grade. Oh, second
2: grade. Okay. That's pretty fancy.
3: (laughs) Uh, I think.
2: Actually, in my case, my experience was when my parents knew that I was not going to be a scientist. Uh, We had in the fifth grade an inventor's fair. And when this was announced, I felt super confident that I was definitely going to have the best invention out of everybody. You were a humble kid. Yeah. Well, I was getting a lot of uh, positive feedback from my mom at the time. So I felt pretty good about my chances. Uh, but then the day of the Inventors' Fair came, and I realized over breakfast that morning that I had failed to invent anything. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, what can I invent right here, right now, before the school bus comes, <laughs> that I can enter in this Inventors' Fair? And it, the thought came to me, a sandwich. I can mm. invent a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and so I invented the peanut butter and jelly surprise. Okay. Uh, And in case you would like to know what a peanut butter (laughs) and jelly surprise is, it's essentially just a regular peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but surprise, there's a piece of ham in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Just what everybody wants in their
3: PB&J. They say, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, (laughs) yeah, did you win? (laughs) (laughs) You think the world might have been crying
2: out for the peanut butter and jelly surprise? Uh, no, I did not win, shockingly. All the other kids had these like amazing inventions and honestly you could probably sell on the home shopping channel today Like self-cleaning litter boxes and all this stuff and I'm here with like my
3: one soggy sandwich that I brought in the school I mean, I don't know the peanut butter and jelly surprise sandwich diet sounds like it might cover would, a lot <laughs> of food groups <laughs> You would definitely lose
2: weight on the peanut butter and jelly
3: surprise diet Fortunately, <laughs> you found a career in science storytelling instead Yes, thank goodness <laughs>
2: So, I think our our storytellers today might have some hopefully better endings to
3: their stories. (laughs) Our first story is from Liliana Ayala. It was recorded in June 2019 at the Royal Room in Seattle. The theme that night was Deeply Rooted.
1: I grew up the eldest of four in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Um, we were on a half an acre of land, unheard of, I know. Um, but it was beautiful. There was, there was a deciduous forest surrounding our house. Um, there were wetlands, mulberry bushes in the backyard. Um, this big weeping willow tree that I would swing from. Um, and, My mom was the kind of mom that would tell my siblings, go outside, I don't want to see you back in here until the sun goes down. (laughs) So we were left to our own devices. My brother Louie and I would uh, conduct science experiments uh, in the yard. Uh, One of them involved digging up earthworms, uh, putting them on a piece of cardboard, um, and leaving it out in the sun. (laughs) Our hypothesis, (laughs) the result, a crispy, crunchy death. We never ran that experiment again, (laughs) we were horrified. (laughs) My favorite experiment uh, was one where I put a a glass of water out um, with a piece of paper in it for several days to see what would happen. Um, a couple days later, I came back, and there was a spider in the glass, so I successfully grew a spider. <laughs> <laughs> I was always obsessed with nature, um, the outdoors, and experiments. Um, my family was very supportive. Um, my grandmother lived next door to me uh, and they had this beautiful flower garden and she would take me by the hand and walk me through the garden and tell me the names of each of the flowers. Um, my father would sit my brother and I down in front of the TV and we would watch his VHS tapes of Marty Stoffer's Wild America. This is my favorite show. (laughs) Um, And then at school, I would hoard all of the Ranger Rick um, magazines (laughs) in my desk (laughs) so that I could enjoy them. Um, So they were all very, very supportive. I don't remember having um, specified science courses in elementary school, um, but I do remember... uh, in third grade, there was a project where we were asked to pair up with another student um, and build a replica of the solar system. I was super excited. <laughs> um, so we were assigned a partner, uh, and uh, at the end of class, we were to connect with that partner and exchange information and kind of get the ball rolling um, to work together. So uh, I found Mary, and we exchanged numbers, and I was very excited. I said, okay, come over to my house. Um, we're going to work on this solar system project. My mom and I are going to get the supplies. Don't worry about it. Um, very eager. Um, so I go back home, tell my mom. We go to Michael's. We get all the glitter paint. <laughs> All the styrofoam and all the poster board, um, and, you know, are set up for this, this, um, partner, partner project. Um, so my mom, uh, calls Mary's mom to set up a time when she can come over. Um, I remember my mom picking up the phone. I remember a hushed conversation. I remember my mom angrily hanging up the phone. And I remember her going into her bedroom and closing the door. And then she came out and said, you actually don't need a partner? I'll be your partner. So I didn't know what had happened. Um, I knew somehow in this conversation I lost a partner. Um, My mom was going to substitute Um, and I had a bunch of supplies and glitter paint. Um, so the next day at school, I was so puzzled. I didn't know what had happened. I found Mary and I asked her, Mary, why didn't you come over? And she said, Well, my mom won't let me come over to your house. Um, and you can't come over to mine. Uh, and as an adult, I analyzed and overanalyzed something maybe I picked up from being a kid. That's what I was doing in that moment. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, is something wrong with my family? Is something wrong with my house? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? <laughs> so it played over and over and over again. Um, and ultimately, um, in the end, my mother helped me with that project, Um 20 years later, I asked my mom, "What did that conversation? How did that pursue? How did that go?" Um, and she, she, I go, "Do you remember it?" She goes, "Oh yeah, I, I remember that conversation." Um, and she said to me, "They just didn't want you over there," um, and I knew why why they didn't want you over there, and I knew why they didn't want her to come over to our house. Um, our family was one of a handful of Mexican-American families in the suburbs of Arlington Heights at that time. Um, Forest View Elementary didn't have very many students of color. Um, I I feel like I could even count on my hand. That's um, not the case now. Um, But when she told me that, I sat back and I remembered how I felt. um, When I asked Mary, why didn't she come over to my house? Um, And I'm, like, feeling it right now, this, like sent this feeling of, like, your heart is caught in your your throat um, and your hands are clammy. Uh, I felt like my face started to, to burn up, and I, I felt, like, so embarrassed I wanted to disappear. So I thought at that time if I'm not good enough to be a science partner for Mary, am I not good enough to be a scientist? So you're young and, you know, you equate these things one with the other. And I kind of lived out the rest of my life um, with that in the back of my head, despite the fact that um, Rainbows were center stage in my poems. Um, alligators were the main attraction in my dioramas. Um, I went on to study English in college and wrote about nature and environment um, and discovered Mary Oliver, who taught me the connection between um, environment and the literary canon. <laughs> And Emerson and Thoreau um, taught me the connection between nature and social justice. Uh, And Sandra Cisneros held a mirror up to me, showing me that I wasn't the only brown girl in Illinois that saw the connection between nature and culture and the ancestors. So I studied English, um, and my last year... I flew to Spain and had the great privilege to study Spanish literature in Granada, um, in South uh, Spain, in Andalusia, and uh, there I spent a lot of time eating, uh, (laughs) reading, hanging out on the beach, and uh, when it was time to come back, I felt this sense of anxiety and remembered what it felt like to be in the suburbs and to grow up in a suburb that was predominantly white Um, and felt that I had an experience that had expanded my mind in such a way that um, to go back to something so constricting um, even gave me this feeling of, like, being boxed in. Um, And so I came back and had decided... I needed to go on another adventure like I couldn't stay I couldn't stay there Um, and I looked at the AmeriCorps website and had decided to dedicate myself to service um, and to look for a space that I had never been before so I looked at New York and Washington and I had never been to either of those states. Uh, I ended up applying for a position here in Seattle with an organization called EarthCore. And, (laughs) EarthCore fans. Um, (laughs) And so I applied and what was interesting is I, I will never forget the questions on that application. The first one was what is an environmental issue that concerns me the most? And I remember reading a National Geographic that had outlined the deforestation of the Amazon and the displacement of indigenous tribes there, um, and it struck me to my core um, for multiple reasons. At that time, um, and this is a still ongoing process but um, the village of Arlington Heights um, for several years has been trying to claim my father's home through eminent domain Um, and uh, as an adult reading back on some of the transcripts for the village of Arlington Heights council meetings I would read um, them I would see them refer to that property as blighted Um, and Oh, you, you all know what that means. <laughs> um, it was dog whistle terms, racist terms. Um, and that, that home was never blighted to me. Um, Anyone who has ever seen my father's home, um, it is beautiful. There are um, cilantro plants and jalapeño plants, um, flowers of all kinds, um, this rolling lawn um, that my father takes great pride in. (laughs) Um, But when we were youth, it was meant for us to play pickup games of baseball um, in, which was awesome. Um, And so... At that time, reading uh, about what was happening in the Amazon, very different scale, but had hit me um, in such a way that I felt that was an issue that was of most concern. The second question was, why do I think poor people are poor? Um, And, well, uh, institutional racism. (laughs) (laughs) Done. (laughs) Done. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, that was a, a piece of it, but what had stuck with me was that institutionalized racism and oppression feeds economic disparity and fear um, and keeps those in power, um, you know, for the p- pursuit of their own wealth, health, and happiness, um, while the many other of us are struggling. Um, it made me think of a story my grandfather told me Um and so when my, my grandfather and my grandmother moved from Texas to Illinois, I um, have deep roots in Texas, um, <laughs> they lived in a chicken coop. Um, and my father was a baby, uh, and they told me that my grandmother had to sleep sitting up um, so that the rats wouldn't bite my, my father. Um, and they would insulate the chicken coop with cardboard, um, to help kind of cut through the, the Windy City winds. Um, and he told me that story and he tells me this story frequently. Um, and the reason why he tells me that is so that I will never forget what my family has gone through for me to be here, right? (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> so why are poor people poor? <laughs> I answered those two questions, and um, I was very surprised to hear back. Um, that I got an interview. I was like, wow, I don't have a degree in science. I have. I read the description for habitat restoration. I was like, I don't even know what any of this means. <laughs> Sounds cool. <laughs> I'm in. Um, but they interviewed me, and I'm so grateful for that, um, because for the longest time, I felt that the sciences weren't for me. So many people made me feel like it wasn't for me. I didn't look the way a scientist should look. I didn't have the education or background that a scientist should have. But when it came down to it, I found strength in the science that came from my family and my ancestors. My poems had always centered around the stories of my grandmother and my grandfather and the the herbs um, and curandera wisdom that was passed down from generation to generation. Things like knowing manzanilla tea was going to help me go to sleep better. Or uh, the reason why epazote is put in frijoles is to cut through the gas. <laughs> <laughs> Science. <laughs> so... I found strength in that, um, and I'm grateful for that experience, um, being able to start my service year. Um, That one year turned into 13 years here in Seattle. Um, and Thank you. (laughs) And grateful uh, that it opened doors for me to become a wetland scientist, um, to build trails with the Forest Service, to be a wildland firefighter, to work on policy for Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. (laughs) So as I I, I was preparing this story, I was thinking back again on my mom helping me with that science project. Uh, She could have chose to cuss the teacher out. She could have chose to, to cuss Mary's parents out. Um, there were a lot of choices before her, but what sticks with me is that she chose to sit next to me and outline those stars with glitter paint. Thank you.
3: That was Liliana Ayala. Liliana leads the environment and climate policy and outreach for U.S. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Liliana is dedicated to working across difference to co-develop solutions that will lead us to a more equitable and just world. She's a leadership fellow with the Henry M. Jackson Foundation. She's on the board of Got Green. She's the co-chair of the Open Space Equity Cabinet and a board member of Short Run Comics and Arts Festival. She has a BA in English from Winona State University, a certificate in nonprofit management from Georgetown University, and a certificate in wetland science and management from the University of Washington. Oh, That's a lot of certificates, Liliana. She's impressive.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that moment in her story when her mom reveals what actually happened, it's, it's such a gut punch.
3: I know. it's It really got me. I mean, I think about the things that parents have to do to protect their kids, and having her mom... Shield her from the other parents' racism and still manage to make that project a good memory. It's so amazing. And I just think of all the parents and all the kids out there and how much more school projects sometimes take than just scissors and crayons and construction paper. Totally.
2: Our next story today is from Vicki Forster. It was recorded in October 2018 at the Burdock Brewery in Toronto. The theme that night was one of a kind. So I was 13 or 14,
0: I was at a park with some of my friends. We were playing on the swings, we were on our bikes, we were playing a little bit of football. And at one point, I'm standing with my back to the swings and intentionally or otherwise, one of my friends decides to pull back the swing and release it in my direction. And it hits my lower back. I fall to the ground in absolute agony. I am in a crumpled heap, my fingers are throbbing, My head feels like somebody's sticking needles in it, and I'm screaming. I think I'm having a go at that friend. All of my other friends have formed a circle around me, and I am in agony. I think I was saying I'd broken my back, because that's how it felt. And after a while, I got up, I sat up, and I was okay again. Now, from that moment on, I knew my lower back was sensitive. Uh, There would be times I'm quite clumsy. There would be times where I would hit into a door or maybe my lab bench at work, and it would just be really, really painful. Mm. More recently, when being intimate with someone, occasionally that bit would get touched and really spoil the mood. Um, Or recently, I had some physio on my lower back for something completely different, and the first time that the physiotherapist touched that particular kryptonite spot was not fun for me, the other patrons, or his eardrums. But, Despite my scientific background, I think I just thought everybody was sensitive in their lower back. It's your spine, it's sensitive, right? So it's Christmas, 1994, and I'm in a town in the southeast of England where I grew up, and all of my family are there. I should have been downstairs playing games and getting really high profitable with sugar, but I wasn't. I was upstairs on my aunt and uncle's bed, which is where the Christmas party was, and I had a fever and I was napping and both of my parents were occasionally coming to check on me, putting their heads around the window. And I had been sick for maybe four weeks with something suspected to be pneumonia that just wasn't shift. But a week later, I went into hospital and I wouldn't leave for three months. And I'd been diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common type of childhood cancer. And it's almost a success story, actually, of modern chemotherapy. of children in developed countries now actually survive, which is wonderful. But when I had it 20-something years ago now, it was about 65% survival rate. And I knew it, too. I was a really, really smart kid. I asked lots of questions, and I wanted my parents and the doctors to be kind of honest with me. But the reality was really hard to ignore because my parents and my, my friends, particularly the ones with brain tumors, would often go home and just never come back. And I knew they had died, but in a way it was a little bit abstract. I never really considered that that would happen to me. I just kind of got on with it. And there was lots of obviously sad and terrible times on the ward, uh, but oddly enough there was moments of joy as well. I actually, kids with cancer often get really nice things uh. Thumb for them. Uh, I went to, uh, I went to Paris in a London taxi before either of my parents had visited Paris. Um, I went to Disneyland in a fleet of London black taxi cabs. And I got to meet Helen Sharman, who was the first ever British astronaut in space. And as a complete space nerd, this was probably the most exciting time of my life. I was the kind of kid who had more glow in the dark stars than actual wallpaper on her walls. And I had pictures of the Apollo astronauts, the Gemini rockets, and, and everyone. And she came. And she'd been on Mir just a couple of years before. And she let me wear her jumpsuit that she'd worn on Mir. And I stood there so proud, eating my space-freeze-dried chocolate ice cream, which tastes awful, makes your tongue feel like it's going to stick to the roof of your mouth. It was probably the most excited I'd ever been. But it obviously wasn't all plain sailing. And I experienced a particularly harrowing moment. I had uh, been in hospital one day, I would come back quite late at night I think, and uh, I was sitting and playing board games with my parents, just downstairs around the coffee table. And I just I kept laughing and I kept knocking things over and I was just really weirdly uncoordinated. And so I went to bed. Next morning, I woke up and I stood up and I fell over. And I tried to call my mum for help and my words came out all mispronounced and all garbled and I was paralyzed directly down my left-hand side. And the next thing I remember, I was lying in my living room. I guess my dad or my mum had carried me there. The family doctor had rushed around, and we were waiting for an ambulance. And I can just remember feeling kind of odd about it all. It wasn't painful. My parents were terrified. That was scary. But I think because I'd had so many months of abnormality, being a child treated for cancer, I'd almost become desensitized to the weirdness. It was all new to me, and this was just another thing to deal with. So I got to hospital in London in a blue light flashing ambulance, which was also quite exciting. And uh, I remember sitting in my hospital bed and just seeing all of these doctors crowded around me. And then a few hours later there was more. They'd actually had to fly a lot of them back from a conference in Paris. I was actually on a clinical trial at that point for a new treatment, um, which was a drug called methotrexate, which was injected directly into my spine. And it was actually used to replace radiotherapy to the the brain and spinal cord. And the reason for this is to try and get any leukemia stem cells that might be hiding out, evading all the other therapies and waiting to come back and cause a relapse. So this is the first time this drug had been tried rather than radiotherapy. And so it was very new, and I could tell by looking at the doctor's faces that nobody knew what was going on. Because normally they would be laughing and joking with me, and I'd ask so many questions. And they'd be asking me about my schoolwork and telling me exactly why I needed that blood, that drug, why it was red, why it was orange, why that was green, why I had no hair left. But this time they were looking very seriously at me, and I looked for my favorite doctor in the crowd of faces, which... She always made me feel better. She was called Dr. Kingston, and she was in charge of my treatment. And she had she was a modern-day Florence Nightingale. She had the kindest face you can ever imagine and the softest voice. And I looked at her, and she wasn't looking at me. She was talking to the other doctors, ordering tests. And then she looked at me, and I could just see in her eyes she, she was fearful. Nobody knew what was going on. And so a few days later, I'm still half-paralyzed, And I'm lying in bed and I'm watching cartoons with my dad. And he gets he gets up and he says, oh, I'm just going to the toilet. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And he leaves his chair by the side of my bed. And as I had done many times during that last couple of days, I looked down at my left hand and I tried to wiggle my fingers. And this time they moved just a little bit. I tried to move my arm and it didn't really move, but I could feel the muscles tensing. And I thought, What if I can get to that chair and sit in his chair by the time he gets back? It'll be a couple, I've got a couple of minutes. And if I can just be sitting there smiling at him. And so I made my way over to the chair and I sit there smiling, looking so proud of myself. And he opens the curtain and he went, how the heck did you get there? And I just kind of went and waved at him, just the, the weakest wave. And I'm looking so proud of myself. And he goes and he gets the doctors, he gets the nurses, and they come back. And the the long story short is it took maybe two weeks of physio, but I mostly recovered. Um, The only difference really being now is I used to be completely ambidextrous, and now I'm definitively right-handed. Although weirdly, I still play pool the wrong way around, which is odd because I played a lot of pool at the hospital. So I don't know whether that's some kind of strange hangover from my time there. So life actually went back to normal. I went to school. I loved science. I did well at school. And I actually grew up to become a cancer research scientist focusing for leukemia initially on my PhD. And one day I was invited to do a talk. This was quite quite frequent. A fundraising event for a local charity. And I talked a little bit about this side effect that had happened. There were lots of people in attendance who had had their own experience of cancer or maybe a family member had had it too. And a man came up to me afterwards and he said, that side effect you had, that methotrexate drug. And I hadn't actually mentioned methotrexate in the talk. He said, my daughter, my daughter, she had it, she had it too. And I was, oh, and I'm looking at him going, you're not that old. I said, how old's your daughter? And he said, seven. And, And he said, she was completely paralyzed down her left side. And I kind of was like, this still happens 20 something years later? Like, nobody's figured it out. It isn't just because it was the first ever clinical trial and since then people have figured out why this has happened and this is mostly, kind of, people have mostly um, sorted it. And I thought, well, no, this isn't okay. I'm not going to just accept that mostly it gets better and some kids actually don't recover very well. Uh, I should do something about this. So I put my science brain on and I thought, God, how the heck do I do this? Um, and I actually came to thinking that Unusually, I was a bit of evidence. Not many scientists probably come up with this kind of idea, but I was evidence to inform my hypothesis. And so I sent Dr. Kingston an email. I hadn't seen her in several years because I have my long-term follow-up in another hospital in the north of England. And I was like, "Hello, do you remember me? (laughs) Um, I was your patient, and and now I'm a scientist, um, and I have a question." We actually met for coffee on Christmas Eve uh, one year outside the hospital where I was treated at. And I sat there with my coffee, waiting for her, thinking she's probably going to be held up in the hospital or something, or maybe she won't turn up because she'll be held up in the hospital. And this now fairly elderly woman kind of struggles through the door with massive boxes. And she comes to the table and she puts them down. And they're my notes. They're my medical notes. And we spend the next hour, hour and a half, going through my medical notes, looking for clues to see if I can use information about what happened to me to inform my hypothesis. And I'm sitting there with a lady who saved my life talking to her as a scientist on an equal level, and it was quite a remarkable experience. So after the meeting, I figured out that what I needed to do was grow healthy nerve cells and treat them with this methotrexate drug to see what happened. Now, before that, I'd only ever really used cancer cells because I did a PhD in leukemia, and cancer cells are really different from healthy cells in the way that they behave in the lab and what you do with them. So I, know, I knew that I needed to grow nerve cells from stem cells. Now, as I mentioned before, I was a leukemia biologist. Leukemia cells are really easy to grow. They're all round and floaty. Uh, <laughs> They're generally fairly well behaved and you can grow several million of them very, very quickly. I had never in my life uh, grown stem cells and also this was a neuroscience project and I have to say I hated neuroscience at university. (laughs) So I needed help and I needed help fast and I was really lucky that there was somebody in my building who grew stem cells and grew nerve cells from stem cells. And so I asked her for help and I said, could you train me to, to do these stem cells? And if I can do them, then I can you know, create some preliminary evidence and some data in the evenings to support a project grant so I could get some funding for maybe a year of work. And She's like, yes, sure, OK, fine. And it's really hard to grow stem cells. Um, the first time I did it, I killed everything, which is remarkable, and it's also quite expensive. Um, <laughs> But I have to say, I'm a lot better at it now, thankfully, because I still do it today at SickKids down the road. Um, and we worked together. I got some training. I had the privilege to kind of work with some amazing people, including a lot of medical doctors who are also like, yes, this side effect is cannot go unexplained. And uh, we applied for a grant of $100,000, which is not a lot, actually, in bioscience terms, and we got it. And I spent the next year working on creating these nerve cells from these stem cells and treating them with this drug and figuring out what happened to them. And some wonderful things happened during that year. It was 2016, and I actually was able to get a a brief travel fellowship to come to SickKids for a month and work with experts here who work with methotrexate neurotoxicity. And while I was here, I ended up meeting lots of people and having interviews and, uh, you know, I decided that I'd like to come and work there, and I I got offered a job. So what happened to my research? Well, I've actually already published a couple of academic papers featuring it, but the big one is yet to come, as many things. It takes time. And I'm actually presenting it at an academic conference in Japan in three weeks' time at one of the biggest uh, pediatric oncology conferences in the world. And I'll be presenting a poster with all my data, and I'm hoping that this... Uh, information will make it less likely that kids like me in the future will go on to experience this side effect. And on my poster will be an acknowledgement section for everybody who's helped me to do this research, as is typical when we present our work. And in that acknowledgement section, I will say thank you to Dr. Kingston. Now, when I first started presenting the work a couple of years ago, I said thank you to Dr. Kingston. Now, I have to say thank you to the late Dr. Kingston, because she passed away from an acute illness about year and a half ago now. And I was actually invited to her funeral, and it was about a week or two weeks before I moved to Canada. And I was working right up to the wire to try and get this stem cell, nerve cell work done. And I thought about going, but it would have meant abandoning the last experiments that I needed for this project. And I couldn't think of a greater tribute to her than staying in that lab and working my ass off and making sure that we got this project done. So I sat there on a Sunday and I thought of her, and I thought of her kind, amazing face, and I thought about meeting her for that coffee, which was the last time that I ever saw her. And I knew that she'd be so proud of me. Now, I don't know whether some people would maybe say, well, you had cancer for a reason, and you had this side effect for a reason, and I'm not spiritual enough to think that at all. I just think that these things happen to a little girl who always wanted to become a scientist, And I hope that I've used my training and skills and all the wonderful people I've had support from throughout my life and my career to make it less likely that children like me will go through the same thing I did in the future. Thank you.
2: That was Vicki Forrester. Vicki is a pediatric cancer research scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and the survivor of childhood leukemia. She loves communicating her science, having done two TED Talks, and she currently writes as a contributor for Forbes. She is particularly passionate about advocating for better research into the side effects of cancer treatment and involving survivors in decision-making about what to research.
3: It really makes me think about, there's just so many things in the world right now that we all react to by saying, somebody needs to do something about this. And I really, I love the people who say, so I guess it has to be me and just dig in. Yeah. Somebody's got to get out there and make the world a better place. Yeah, they certainly do, and we are grateful for them. The Story Collider is also grateful to the Tiffany & Co. Foundation for their support, as well as to Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led
2: by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And by me, Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team.
3: The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Emi Ogikawa and Malia Pagurigan, as well as by Misha Gajewski and Jesse Hildebrand. The podcast is
2: edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost.
3: Special thanks to the Royal Room and to Burdock Brewery for hosting our
2: shows. And thanks to all the science and math teachers out there who are inspiring a
3: new generation of scientists. And also thanks to all the little baby scientists in the world working so hard to figure out impossible problems like gravity and how do fingers work. (laughs) You've got this. Thanks for listening.